At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help or PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to trauma recovery is clear. In three, two, one. Today on the show, we have Nick Goldsmith from the UK, a Royal Marine Commando. Nick, welcome to the show, brother. Hi, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really looking forward to this. We are cut from the same cloth, you and I, have a lot of the same passions, and I'm looking forward to that part of it. But getting right into the mud, right off the bat, I wanted to ask you a very tough question. At what point in your service, from deployments, whatever the moment was, when did you first know that maybe there was an issue? Uh, you may not have called it PTSD right off the bat, but when did you first know that there was something wrong? I never felt the same from uh, October the 8th, 2008. Uh, October the 8th, 2008, quarter six in the afternoon. That's how precise it can be because it was uh, an event um, which, uh, which was to shape uh, many of my actions and behaviors thereafter. So um, I was serving with four five commando Royal Marines um, in whiskey company, in particular three troop. And it was actually one of our very first patrols. We'd just taken over from the parachute regiment uh, from two para where I had already lost a good friend here, uh, who I went to school with. He, we, we both went to our respective um, regiments or battalions, whatever we want to look at this, uh, both, both uh, elite armed forces within the UK makeup um, and his training. So we started around the same time his training ended. He got his, uh, his, his wings, his Maroon Beret and deployed. Um, I got, I, I got my unit of choice, went to four five commando, did the beat up training and suddenly Fast forward all, all that. I'm there in, in, in the heat of battle and it's happening. And he's already gone. He's gone. Um, and I found that out on a training exercise before we'd even got out there. And I think I think that definitely had something to do with it. But the nail in the coffin was the ambush. So um, at quarter six in the afternoon, we've already been out on a couple of patrols. And this one was billed as a... Um, climatization and I don't know what else you want to put it basically it's a fighting patrol there's no other way to dress it up we're going out there to see where the threat where where the limit is how far we can we can kind of what's our limit of exploitation how far can we go until we're going to run into trouble or it's going to come find us or whatever's going to happen so it was made clear before we even set off that it was going to be, you know, you can imagine the build up. You're in the, you're in the, in the fob and you're, <clears throat> I was a mini me gunner. So, uh, or the saw, I don't know what you call that, but it's the five, five, six mini me, yeah. um, Belgian FN. That was our, that's uh, our C9. Okay. So I was the C9 gunner, but I'm also, uh, being the country bumpkin and being the new boy, uh, I'm at the front with the metal detector. So I'm the point man as well. So I'm kind of reading the ground sign, sweeping for metal detecting for IDs and all that kind of good stuff. Um, it's, it's a, it's a privileged role and it's also kind of one that we see an awful lot of people struggling with later on because it's, uh, it's, it's buku pressure. So, um, at quarter six, we're acting 
rather than a uh, kind of typical uh, kind of commando um the way that we'd normally roll up you'd break down a troop of 30 guys into like you know sections of 10 three sections and you'd kind of pepper pop forward and you'd push some guys out wide and have some guys getting up high and, and kind of covering each other as we're moving through and you can kind of keep this almost like a triangular shape um which means that if you, if you run into a classic 360 ambush or something like you know you can always kind of hold your shape on the ground and you can try and facilitate a a kind of an exit or, or a route out and then you can kind of peel around and and uh, and have one up on the enemy so but sadly we weren't doing that we were still under uh, parachute regiment control and at the time they were really suggesting look you know we've just had six months to this you need to be in a big troop snake you need to be in one line all sections lined up behind each other keep your spacings uh so you can keep everyone everyone together and you can keep an eye on what's going on so we were doing that now we came to a place called ops box monkey 10 on the map this is in sangin afghanistan and um three so my section was in the rear at this point and the other two sections are up front now the guy the very front of let's say one section right the front find something just as we hit the edge of the the infamous canal path for anyone who's been to Sangin knows that area is a canal path the big canal that comes all the way through the whole fob the whole base and um and what it is is it turns out to be a metal plate as in like a plate that the afghans eat with you know like uh, just one of their classic eating dishes that's been laid in the ground obviously it has a, it's circular in shape and the metal detector is reading it's giving a perfect reading there's a strong metal signature in the ground and so we all stop the hand goes up and everybody takes a knee and this knee obviously so we're snaking all the way back across this field um and nobody's clocked it at the time but the field had been cut corn had been perfectly cut down apart from uh kind of right at one end of the phase was still in full um full growth so it's been 50 degrees of heat uh we're all sweating profusely i've already had a massive nosebleed all over my uh, radio down the front of my <laughs> plate and all over the top cover of the uh, the mini me where I'm, I'm still getting acclimatized and all that kind of fine sand is wearing out the inside of your nose and um and just generally, generally trying to get my bearings with, uh, you know, the amount of weight that we're carrying as well, because it was it was put to us um, before we set out. You know, it's kind of very much ditch everything else. It's just ammo and water. That's all you're taking. Uh, we had the infamous speech about look left and right of you because not everyone could come back from this. Blah 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 blah. All the kind of build up that you get with a, a big. Uh, this will be this will be tasty or fruity or however you want to word it. You know, we're likely to find some trouble here. And so uh, when Trouble found us, um, what it was, we'd stopped perfectly as they had wanted us to, snaked out across this field. And I was actually on a knee facing the other way because we're all covering each other's arcs in a sort of herringbone shape. And a dog started barking, um, giving away our position. So one of the guys comes on the radio, and I can still hear it vividly today, in a Liverpudlian accent, and I'm not going to do it. Presses the button on the PRR, just goes doo doo, and says, "Right, boss, I'm going to fire a mini flare at this dog to to get it to go." And as he does so, <laughs> as he does so, about forty to fifty meters away from us, Max is a screen of corn and a small wall on the edge of a corn. So yeah, they they kind of popped up from behind the wall. Uh, I mean, this is I mean, this is what intelligence said, right? Very bad intelligence. If you've watched Team America, you'll know. Uh, the intelligence is never 
quite what it is, but they told us that supposedly it was Chechnyans afterwards. Um, and I was facing the other way. And the first thing I remember is just this burst of fire. So the dog, so the pop went off from the flare and from behind this screen of corn, this burst of fire went off uh, behind me. And obviously it's real close. And I'm kind of thinking my initial thought was actually, Oh, Oh, you know, so, someone's just lent on their machine gun and just let off a, you know, like who's done that? That's outrageous. <laughs> kind of thinking like, what? Like you think, so you think it's an accidental discharge. Yeah. Yeah. It just sounded like it was someone further up the line. Someone's had a nightmare. What's gone on there. And, um, you know, I hadn't even clocked the difference in the sound in the rounds back then it was, it was still early. Yeah. So, uh, you know, by the, by, by the end of my time on that ground, I could tell you it was 200 meters away, hundred meters away and what it was and everything. But so yeah, there was a huge burst. And then I looked across at, uh, at our Sergeant who was just lighting a cigarette and he just spat the cigarette out he shouted this was like his fifth tour shouted contact as he was spinning around on a knee and started engaging the wall everyone lit up the wall (laughs) and off we went and it was it was a very awkward and uncomfortable um probably only about six to ten minutes of just writhing about on the floor with nothing to hide behind (laughs) whilst there was this huge exchange of gunfire going on and uh and we were we were suppressing the enemy um but i felt very very exposed um unable to get any decent cover other than behind the the rear sight of of the weapon um and just get just try and keep keep a pattern going across the top of the wall because you couldn't actually pin anyone down there was just this set of legs uh rpk legs swinging left and right um uh so you couldn't it wasn't actually anything to to particularly aim at but uh but just to just to put down a huge weight of fire uh, and gain control of the situation um and during that time we then called in uh i say we the sergeant major and the co called in some 105 artillery from six kilometers away so this is then suppose this is then going to come in at danger close in front of us from six k away, and you can imagine the angle of the dangle on on the big gun there. Yeah, uh, that's so really it, close for bringing in artillery, but you got to do what you got to do. So what we need to do is get up and peel into a ditch that's behind us, another forty meters away. And I remember looking across, and Larry, uh, that's his nickname, the medic, had already got seven magazines down at this point. <laughs> uh, he had to peel first. And I'll never forget this set of eyes, you know, the widest eyes you've ever seen in your life as I looked up to him uh, as he got up to peel. Um, and then we all peeled one at a time, sprinted back uh, under under the fire. So I was the last one to go because I'm, I'm the sort of base of fire. And I remember getting up and then peeling back and and literally like so much adrenaline. I remember my legs failing me or me tripping over something uh, and just sure that I was going to catch a round in the back because um, it was that much lead winging about. Um, got into that ditch and then I was securing, covering the side uh, to stop them flanking us um, when the artillery came in. And it just sounded like the air, the, the sky was being torn in half, you know, <laughs> massive artillery shells coming in, um, which we, and then everything just went deadly silent after that. Um, and, uh, and, and all the kind of RPGs had stopped coming in and everything had stopped exploding for two seconds Um and then we were required. So what had happened is the other two call signs had managed to get down the ditch, the other side of the canal path, and they were kind of lined up on the riverbank. And we, in our little section, were, were cut off uh, in, in this little ditch. So we had to get up and make a run to join the rest of the troop. And then the shooting started again. Uh, so we had to extract up the river 
uh, uh, sort of chest deep in the river under fire um, to get up into into a little patrol base. Um, and it was it was around that time that we realised that uh, so uh, rather bravely, my section commander um, was struggling to get the radio to send the messages because he was lying down and the antenna is obviously level with the floor. So he did, you know, he stood up, got up, got up on a knee and in doing so took a round through the shoulder. Um, and it turned out another guy just down the line from me had, uh, had kind of taken one just through the edge of his neck uh, and, and kind of creased the top of his chest, but hadn't gone. Luckily the round hadn't gone behind the plate because if it has, it would have done that thing they do where they stitch through uh, the plates from plate to plate. So, um, so we got away with it, um, despite being ambushed. And, uh, I, I strongly believe if the dog hadn't come out and, uh, and made the racket, then we wouldn't have tried to shoo it off. And they would have had time to come up from behind the screen of corn and pick us man for man, uh, and me facing the wrong way that wouldn't have fared very well. So first day on patrol, first proper, you know, big tear up, um, that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have been great. Subsequently, we had another couple of contacts, uh, getting back up into the fob, when we finally got back, it was dark at this point and they were making real use of that weird light between putting your NVG on and just kind of failing daylight. So they were, they were optimizing uh, us, us in our kind of confused state. Um, And sadly, one of the guys had left a metal detector. He couldn't, for whatever reason, he, he kind of buried it or knew exactly where it was in a ditch. And the commanding officer did not want that technology to get out into wider arms. So we were going to have to go back down the canal path. And of course, all the chitter chatter coming in on the, uh, the little radio that we have, that we can listen to what they're up to uh, is saying that they're waiting for us. Um, and yours truly uh, just happened to be the first guy that was going to lead, lead us back down the canal path. So I was, I was quite disappointed. I remember feeling uh, a real feeling of like frustration and, and that it was unfair that I probably wasn't going to see the rest of this day through, <laughs> you know, kind of you work so hard to earn your green beret and you've got these aspirations of how your career will go. And it looks like it's going to end here today at this rate. I was really, my mindset at that point was I'd had all the kind of, I'd realized my mortality rate and I'd had all the stuffing knocked out of me emotionally. I think at that point I was probably, extremely adrenally fatigued looking back i think that's that's probably how i was feeling i felt felt a bit sick um super tired super drained uh and not looking forward to having to go back down that same canal path to me it was like why are we doing this anyway i got about 15 meters out of the fob and we got recalled thank god so the next morning we went out to do the patrol and uh i was leading off but i I felt a bit better having having had some sleep but after that patrol we were asked to clean your weapons and do all the kind of usual things that uh, you need to do to turn and burn and change the sentries and who's going to be on QRF and all the kind of things that happen in a, in a fighting unit um, with that pace at that time in 2008. I mean, 2008, nine. So we were in the winter tour. So 2009 was the bloodiest year of fighting in Afghanistan um, for us as Brits. So it was, it was in that peak peak time. So, I mean, um, Earlier that day, I'll tell you another thing that was quite a poignant moment was just before the ambush, we'd been asked to fix bayonets. So they knew something was going to go down. So we'd all fix bayonets, um, you know, and that's, and that, that day pretty much set the tone for how every day would be for the next, however long it was, it was high speed stuff, but I never felt the same after that day. I never slept correctly. I never, I don't think I really processed any of that day at all. Um, 
And when I look back retrospectively, it makes total sense that it stayed with me because if you don't sleep and you don't go through that REM state, um, because, you know, the ops routine is 18 hour patrols. You got two hours on sentry. You then might sleep for two hours and you might be rocketed through that two hours. And then you're going to go back on sentry and then you're getting up to go out on a patrol again. Your 24 hours are done. And, and before you know it, that you're into another day and with every day being high speed and you have to witness with zero sleep of, really all the kind of byproducts yeah so i think i think the the fundamental thing there was the lack of the sleep and the pace that's what was breaking breaking us down um as as a group faster faster than than anything else i mean you, you, you go through an incredible amount of training um, and, and you, you know, the, the training is set a certain way. Uh, I mean, it's, it's obviously world renowned um, Royal Marine Commando training. It's not something you just rock up and pass, but equally. So you, so you've got the kind of, you've got the, the key individuals who are most likely to have the resilience to be able to c- conduct this sort of work. But again, you start taking sleep away from people and uh you know, that's when the struggle starts. And so, sometimes it's necessary, Nick, you know, like sometimes you just have to push through for the three, four five days with zero sleep. But yep. most times I find it's just poor leadership. It's the leadership not uh, staggering people the way that they should and not respecting the fact that uh, nobody's brain works great after uh, that kind of taxing environment and, and no sleep. I mean, can you do it? Yeah. Should you do it? No, no. I, think, I think that's where we were still way behind the curve. I mean, we didn't even have decompression. The first decompression came in, I think, after that tour, um, as in in an official capacity. So, and and, and what that looked like was uh, two cans of beer, a night in Cyprus, and a comedian. So you've just spent, you know, potentially six months running around the battlefield, fixing bayonets, w- witnessing the most horrific stuff, and taking part in some some pretty bad stuff. And uh, just to stay alive every day. And then you've had two cans of beer, a night in Cyprus and a comedian. And then you're okay to be in your local nightclub two nights later. You know, it's, it's, it's a recipe for chaos. Um, so that kind of fits in nicely, uh, fast forwarding uh, an awful lot of the story to, to what I do now with the Woodland Warrior Program, because that's, that's kind of very much based about giving people that decompression that they probably never had. And, it could be from any time. It could be from childhood for them. I mean, I, I feel privileged to have had a, a fantastic childhood, a rural childhood, running around in the countryside, disappearing for days on end, making fires and fishing and shooting and all that kind of stuff, um, disappearing on my bike and uh, coming home with two grazed knees uh, and, and being chased off by a farmer and you know, all these adventures. It's all great. Um, but uh, but it's that, that small village um, that I quite quickly outgrew which pushed me towards, you know, I was craving more adventure. And I get that an awful lot of people uh, join the armed forces for different reasons. You know, you've only got to listen to the army advert for the British army, which is something like, uh, this is where you belong, you know, and that's kind of that, that marketing funnel is, is, is capturing um, all of those individuals who, who perhaps don't feel like they belong at home or anywhere else. Um, And so we can, we can start to see a situation where people are joining with their, their cup already half full. Um, and that, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. Um, well, that's, as I said, the, I feel, I that's feel exactly right. Lovely. Most people that go into service, uh, did not have a glorious uh, childhood like yourself. 
Um, And they're actually, if you were to do a proper screening process, most of the people that do join the military shouldn't. Because I don't, I don't think the armed forces would want that screening process no. to take place. No, well, they, <laughs> they can't because the, the same things that happened to you in childhood that made you feel disempowered or that you don't have a voice or any strength or that you don't matter. Um, a lot of people, they for that sense of empowerment and family, that's why they joined the military because that's what Absolutely. they were missing. But those are damaged people. A lot but of them. many of those, and many of those go on to be absolutely incredible soldiers. Absolutely I've, true. I've got to say that some some of the the individuals I have served with and alongside, you know, I've later learned as you as you bond and you grow, you know each other by first name or nickname, and you are literally eating, sleeping, pooing, fighting, dying together, and you know everything about that person, but you you never kind of go surface deep. You know each other as bootnecks, as raw Marines, but you never really kind of go into that side of things until years later when you meet a remembrance parade, you drink uh, rum and you get into it and you kind of, you've become dads, fathers, you've, you've kind of matured and mellowed and you start to reflect. And this is when a lot of the good conversations, the growth side of things starts to come out. It is. And it's, it's very, very different the perspective um although you love your brothers and would do anything for them and gladly lay your life down for them you don't know them you know in in those days you know their character and you know what they're made of but you don't know their story and um but you're exactly right years later that sort of thing can come out and now at, at what point, though, you, you said that because of, of since the battle, you've never felt right. But what were the symptoms? Like what what was manifesting in your life where you went, wait a second, that's not right. Especially the when first, you when you got back to um, when you got back home from the tour to the UK. So so I got I got injured on that tour, um, and I, I damaged my knee, and I had to go back to uh, and it was a it was a mechanical injury as a result of taking. Um, so basically, we I jumped across an irrigation ditch to uh, taking um, taking cover, creamed in on the other side and trashed my knee. And I put a big contusion on the crack on the top of my shin bone, I wrecked my cartilage, and I, I almost cut all the way through my uh, posterior cruciate ligament. So I limped back to the fob, didn't want to really let on to anyone, uh, as I felt like a bit of a, you know... I, Bearing in mind, on day one, I just watched a guy take, take a round through the shoulder, the medic shout to him... Uh, you've just been hit and him shout, I haven't got time as he carries on sending the message on the net quite calmly, like he's buying a pint of milk. You know, these, these guys were legends in my eyes and uh, there was no way that I was going to kind of, I knew it was very painful and I knew that, you know, something mechanically was wrong. And it was actually that individual that pulled me to one side and kind of said, look, I noticed that what's going on with your knee. Um, Cause we need to know, cause you know, at the end of the day, we don't want you to become a liability and then we're going to have to carry you out. So I kind of leveled with him and I said, look, I'm in a lot of pain. I don't know what's going on. He said, go to the medic. I did. I failed a duck walk, you know, that kind of test where you have to kind of go down onto your knees and, and, and duck walk. And my knee was all folding in and they were like, right, back to Camp Bastion for you. I felt awful. That huge feeling of disconnect of being ripped from the place that you thought you were supposed to be and you belonged uh, and, and all those brothers. Um I was having uh, like initial physical reactions was I was producing, I was having acid. Re- they gave me some tablets. I'd never had it before, like huge acid reflux, like an anxiety type response. Um, 
uh, they decided I was going to have to go back to the UK for an operation. I didn't even speak to the Padre. So I think I'd gone from uh, the, earlier that particular day. So we we're talking a couple of months on fighting since the, um, since the initial big ambush. Um, I kind of went back to the UK and within something like 48 hours. I was, I was in Birmingham hospital and we had a police escort for our own safety because the war wasn't very popular and, and there were you know certain communities going on up there and all sorts. It was, it was really tricky. So this, this police escort comes and picks us up for our, our protection. I remember that really sticking with me kind of thinking, well, hang on a minute. I've just been out there doing all this stuff and we're not, we're not, we're not welcome here. You know, back in the UK, there was that, that kind of residing feeling. Hadn't even spoken to a, a like I said, the Padre or anything. You, you didn't have a chance to talk to anyone. You're, you're sort of classed as category E or D, walking wounded, sent back to the UK, back to your home unit. And nobody really opened up or spoke to anyone. Everyone just buried their head. And you were kind of thrown into a rehab troop with a bunch of guys who had already been out uh, on previous tours and maybe even blown up and things. And you certainly weren't going to open up to them. And it was just a really, really difficult time. I remember that. Um, and just the drink, that's when the drinking started. Uh, Very common. Any, opportunity, any opportunity to go for a big night out. And again, you know, you could call this leadership failure. They leadership at the time chose to use the injured guys. As soon as I could bear a weight uh, after the operation, I was carrying coffins. I was carrying coffins of friends of mine who have just come off that tour of people I knew um, and having to face the families and, and going through that whole process. And it was just brutal. And all I wanted to do at the end of every single funeral, once I'd done the, the procession and done the service, it was just drink and forget. Um, and it was very, very hard. Um, subsequently in years past, you know, we now use different units to do these sort of duties. We don't use the same guys who've just come off the ground. Um, and I think a lot of lessons have been learned. I want to, I want to voice that and mention that. Um, but nevertheless, the damage is done. Um, it was done. So extremely difficult time. Um, so you, you're on the tour, you come back injured, you know, you're kind of feeling kind of sidelined like that. And then, and then you're just watching the news and every day there's a new face and someone's coming up and it's someone, you know, and you have to deal with it. Now the symptoms are insomnia, uh, manic behavior, uh, overtraining, hugely overtraining in the gym, constantly on a mission to try and get back out on the ground. No one's going to let you redeploy, um, drinking, uh, just, just awful, awful, really. Um, not a good place to be. And I was kind of there for about a, a year, just under a year after that. Um, and I decided to make a change. I decided I couldn't stay at that unit any longer. And so some billets came in and we're lucky in the Royal Marines that you can get offered lots of different jobs. Now, up until that point, I'd been uh, close combat troops. I'd been in a, a heavy weapons troop. I'd been a driver out on the ground. I was driving a, the mighty British Land Rover. Beautiful. With two armored doors, a 50 cal, a GPMG and a mini me. And that's it. So in any direction, we were very pointy in any one direction. If anything came back at us, Dinada in the way of defense. <laughs> it was all about being light and pointy. Um, and uh, I quite fancied taking up the chef course because it, it meant a golden ticket to pool and to work alongside a tier one unit, which was the boat service. So I thought, okay, I'll do this. So I went down to Plymouth 
polar end of the country from Scotland, from 4-5 Commando in Obraith, and I went down to Plymouth and I did the course. It was eight months long. Royal Marines eight. would be considered uh, tier two, wouldn't they? Uh, yeah, we'd be we'd be a Cat 2 or Cat 2 Plus. Um, so we get used in, um, we have a specific unit based at one, uh, the One Para Barracks. So you've got um, Special Forces Support Group. Um, so we can be kind of rolled into and do non-compliant boardings and bits and pieces in, in absence of Tier 1 or if Tier 1 can't take it on because of their task elsewhere, um, then we're able to step up into that role. But um, a lot of that unit... Uh, relies heavily on uh, on the sport staff, uh, mainly coming from the Royal Marines. So all of their drivers, um, vehicle mechanics, chefs, clerks, everything that happens around the outside of that unit is is generally based based uh, with Royal Marines um, running the show. And then you have the chaps who have taken the time and the effort to go through a, a special forces selection um, and, and successful applicants are then obviously then enter into that world uh, and will be assigned into one of the various squadrons, and uh, that's not that's not for me to uh, to tell their story. So that's that's kind of that's how that works, uh, and it's you know it's um, it's no secret. It's based down at Paul. So I went down there. Um, it was great. I never had to do a single day in the kitchen. I was just permanently attached to someone somewhere in the field, bouncing around the globe. Uh, in any given year, I could be in the jungles of Belize on the training exercise, or I could be in Norway, or I could be in um, one of a few interesting uh, hot desert locations, um, Arab-speaking countries, uh, or, or further afield. And it was while I was down there uh, that I did another, let me get this right, I did another two Afghan uh, deployments. Um, and my roles were, were very varied very varied um i could be i could be my official uh, reason for being in some tiny location on the hit on the mountainside would be uh, to sort out the feeding strength so we would have a kitchen um you know maybe just 40 guys there uh, myself and a couple of other raw marines in, in direct support and we'd all get about go about our jobs so in the morning once the brunch is done i'd probably go and hit the gym um, and then jump in on whatever whatever I needed to do. So whether that's <laughs> if the guys were out on a push, I might be needed to take the um, the indigenous uh, personnel um, on some kind of training through the killing house live, or I might be uh, needed to jump in on uh, taking them for a run or training them or doing doing kind of backfilling roles. So I'd be doing all that kind of stuff. And of course, you can quite imagine going through a killing house. Uh, with 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 a, a fancy AK with a torch and a light on it and all the rest of it, that's still and firing straight across the front of each other and and all the kind of sounds and uh, shouting and things that are going on um, as you're doing it with a bit of gusto. That's still setting off massive psychological uh, processes, which are are taking me back to tour number one when I'm just clearing room after room uh, in the main assaulting pair, going through um, crawling in through those kind of rather unfortunately i i I'd never forget one particular compound we assaulted um <laughs> was the the pipe coming out the back of the compound with all the toiletry there <laughs> with all the nasties coming out of the uh the back side of the um compound it was like the last place they'd ever expect us to come from so we left at like zero four under cover of darkness crept up the side of this ditch to assault this compound and i was the i had to take all my kit off and just crawl through with a mini me through this pipe oh god human human feces and all sorts to uh to be the first guy to assault the compound and um 
Uh, and a, a little old man came around the corner and I tell you what, safety catch was off and I was so close to uh, to drilling him, but luckily he didn't have a weapon on him. So I made the right choice at the time, despite being very, very tired uh, and, and on an absolute edge. And then the rest of us came through and um, he gave us some good intel actually that day, bless him. But um, it's, you know, it's those sort of memories, those sort of kind of just real mismatch of stuff. So things I was doing later in my career were still bringing me back to that point. So I did another couple of tours with Paul and then with no distinguishing tattoos, marks or features and having been at Paul for a little while, um, it kind of led into a new role. Um, I'm not really able to go into any sort of detail with this, but uh, I suppose you'd call it a special forces linguist. There we go. Um, I speak French. My mum's French. So um, I kind of got used for uh, going away and doing interesting jobs further afield, um, sensitive work, and uh, met some lovely Canadians. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, so that, that was a whole different thing. Um, and I guess the thing that I took away from that that really stuck with me, and I mean really fundamentally shook me to my core, was one of these jobs didn't go to plan. So I ended up, um, and I'm sorry I'm so cryptic about this. I'd love to share more, but I, I really can't. Um, people ask me sometimes on courses around the campfire, and they'll say, hey, so when were you in a natural survival situation? Can you tell us about it? And I'll say, well, yeah, yeah, yeah I can. You know, I was in a five-star hotel. <laughs> They're like, what? You were in a what? I was in a five-star hotel, and I was in a genuine survival situation. And they, they look at you like you've got three heads. But the reality was I was unfortunately, uh, due to circumstances, left in a country that I was not in on a job that was not happening, that was not sanctioned. And um, that's as far as I can go with that bit, I'm afraid. But it caused a huge speed wobble inside me. And I think the resilience that I had accrued and that was keeping me sharp and keeping me switched on was tested to the max at that point. And I, I really sat back then and kind of thought, what am I doing? What am I doing? My other half thinks that I'm still in the South of France on an exercise somewhere. I'm not even in the same country. Like she doesn't know where I am. Nobody's going to know where I am. And if I get caught now, I'm in an orange jumpsuit and it's all going horribly wrong. So I've got to do something to get myself out of this. And I think that was the second most defining moment for me because I chose to draw a line in the sand and I promised myself, um, there's a song that starts playing in my mind when I think about this This is the joy of PTSD is it's a string of memories and bits and pieces and music is quite a powerful thing. So do you remember that song? that's like, um, what is it? I'm going to pop some cash. Only got $20 in my pocket. Every time I hear that, I am sat on the end of the bed in the five-star hotel going, uh, what do I do now? Like I've got, I, now's, now's make or break. I can either choose to do something about this or I can stay in this room and, and just fall apart. Like, well, what am I going to do? So, um, that's, a story for around the campfire and probably not, not for the wider audience, but for another day. And I look forward to the day that I get to share that with you in person. Um, but, but that was a defining moment. And so when I got back from there, uh, my mother had cancer. I didn't realize, but um, I found out when we got back. So I had to sit with her through chemo, um, which was a real roller coaster. Um, 
And then I deployed on one last tour of Afghanistan. So I did six operational deployments in all, but in a very short space of time. So we're talking from 2008 to 2014. I'd been out the door six times in all kinds of different mad roles. And the wheels were falling off. My hair was out here on tour. I had this, this like this massive fro of hair, <laughs> curly, curly, curly hair uh, and a huge handlebar moustache. I was smoking a pipe I've never smoked in my life. Uh, and 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 training three four times a day like there was no like I'd put a respirator on and go up and down a rope for an hour and think nothing of it. It was just breaking myself down. You know there were no other vices to go to. I was living on black coffee, panic attacks every single night. One night I woke up, I put the GPMG on, I put all my kit on, and went running out the door. And the guys in my room jumped on me uh, because I was sure I'd heard this humongous explosion and that the main gate had gone up and I was off to the Sanger to make my final stand in this tiny location. <laughs> so I think at this point, things were bad. We had just lost um, an officer, had been killed on a, on a job in that location. And it was the first time a psych nurse had been deployed and I had a chance to speak to someone. So I spoke to the psych nurse, I had the conversation and myself and about seven others were probably highlighted. And she said, I'm going to let you finish the tour but you have to promise to come see me when you get back. I did so. She asked me three questions. I fell apart. I was um, downgraded. And then through an admin error, I was at home for seven months um, whilst Poole thought I was in Plymouth at the Naval Recovery Service Centre for, for this kind of thing. Uh, and they thought that I was still at Poole. So there was this mismatch going on. Um, but the thing that kept me together was the fact that I bought this piece of woodland. And this is how we get onto Hidden Valley Bushcraft, was I, I had somewhere to be. Perfect segue. I was waiting for my moment where I could segue into the how bushcraft and uh, have you heard of the term forest bathing? Uh, I've even done a video about it on my YouTube channel. All, all right. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, 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 tell me about the solace that you've found in nature and forest bathing and how that's helped you. It it harps back to, I think it harps back to my childhood, but I, I actually think it goes much further than that. It, it's, it's ingrained in every one of us for the last 300,000 years, you know, um, we are, we are programmed to, um, to take part in those kind of low frequency, low demand on the brain, uh, kinetic meditation kind of activities, collecting water, processing firewood, um, mending, making, crafting, cordage, netting, um, you name it, things that we did for the largest part of our human evolutionary, uh, from an evolutionary standpoint. It's only in the last hundred years that we've had blue screen um, kind of these real high stimulus. And every single day you're looking at that mobile phone every single day, uh, this conversation, I mean, it has its pluses because we can have this conversation, but, but aside from that, um, we are literally cooking ourselves. I am almost certain of it. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the burnout rate is, is through the roof and whether this is where I think people, uh, and if I may be so bold as to say, like us are able to play a new role. Um, because we've had some hard yards and as you said so rightly in that 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 intro uh we're still here so we've had to learn to cope um now even whether you think you are actually coping or not you're still here as you so rightly said 
Uh, and that's a very important thing and something that, that you shouldn't just pay lip service to because there are an awful lot of people who aren't here and who do choose uh, to, to, to not be here. So when it kind of comes down to it, spending time in the outdoors for me, when I was at that lowest point, when I was at the bottom of the barrel and I didn't know which way to turn anymore, the only thing that felt right, and that's all I was doing is I was just going off of what felt right, um, was to just be outdoors next to a fire, taking my lunch down. I didn't care what weather it was. I didn't even, I didn't want a chainsaw. I didn't want anything noisy. I had really bad problems with uh, hyperacusis. Uh, loud noises were just so I, I prefer off. canoeing to uh, a water ski boat myself. Yeah, so you know where I'm going with this. So I, I had an axe. I had a North American Grands Fours felling axe, and that's all I used to start processing this piece of woodland that I'd bought, which was only about three acres, but it was like a giant hedgerow. It hadn't, it was so light suppressed. It had not seen any love for about 40, 50 years, other than a couple of bat boxes, which were falling apart uh, on the back of some giant oaks. Um, there was no paths. There were no paths. There was no orchard. There was no camp. There was no, I mean, right now, as I speak to you, I am in the final stages of finishing building an off-grid cabin for veteran respite weekends as part of our Woodland Warrior program. Oh, that's so wonderful. Kind of, there's there's a few similar uh, outfits here in uh, in both Alberta and British Columbia. Actually, acro- across the country, there's a few similar ones. Well, well, maybe after this, I would definitely like to um, to speak to you because uh, I had a, an opportunity come across my lap uh, last year. Uh, I was lucky enough to, um, to to get a phone call from a British couple who entered a competition. Uh, where was it? I was in Alaska, actually. It was in Alaska um, to win OC Mountain, which was like a, it was, it's on Netflix, I think, right now in America. I don't know if it's in Canada. Oh, I've, I've uh, seen that. Uh, win the Wild. Yeah, so I, I trained the couple who won Win the Wilderness, Mark and Emily, and they're very good friends of mine. Um, and I've actually since run a veterans farming program where we took a, a bunch of our guys from the Woodland Warrior program up to their farm. Oh, wow. And they were working, they were on the tractors, they were stroking the cows and learning about bovine. We were doing bovine therapy uh, accidentally. We were just learning about cows, and the cows are, some of them are bottle fed and wanted stroking. And we were learning about sheep, uh, we were learning about going to market all the processes um different aspects of british farming and things that maybe some of these boys and girls can get into for for work um and then we did a camp out down in the bottom field um i don't want to steal mark and emily's thunder but they are they are onto a real winner at the moment and they're they're doing big things and i i want to continue to support them with the woodland moray program and work together with them to do some some bits and pieces so uh, alaska was on the cards um we've had to shelve that for now but I'd very much like to go back to that uh, and have that conversation uh, and, and continue the same conversation with yourself uh, off, off record as well. That'd be great. There's something that's truly magical about the, the high north. Um, in 93, our regiment, our battalion rather, went up to Dawson City, Yukon, which is right at the Yukon, uh, British Columbia border is just inside is the capital of the Yukon, which is Whitehorse. And this is another six and a half uh, hours north of that uh, with the bus. It is the middle, it is Klondike. Like this is, this is back there, swinging door saloons, um, uh, people that are actually, uh, panning for gold all summer long and running a trap line all winter long. And, um, it's, 
but there's something that is so magical about the north the sense of adventure that's up there uh, and there's uh, a lot of people that go up there for a visit and they never come back they just like i'm this is, this is where i want to stay regardless uh, of the ridiculous are winters we, are we talking about uh zombie ninja apocalyptic survival sasquatch people or are we talking about no those like- are my cousins but no it's it's more um it, it's it's just this the sense of a, a adventure and beauty there's an actual energy to it that you can feel um yeah. not unlike the you can feel the energy of the forest when you go you can almost feel the energy of of the plants and and the and the moss and um, you could just feel it. And some places have different energies than others. Uh, different mountain ranges feel different Literally. than other mountain I, ranges. I agree with you so much. And and the science is starting to come out now, which is, which is great. Uh, Cause I feel for a long time, the pharmaceuticals were probably kind of keeping that back. But um, what you're describing there, I feel is, uh, is you coming back online. That's you. That's that recuperate, recalibrate, and then re-engage process happening there. So we know the trees give off um, phytoncides, which is the uh, name for the organic chemical uh, combined organic chemicals uh, or compounds being given off by trees. Our bodies react, so our immune system gets a kickstart. Everything starts to boost itself. Everything starts to come back online, where we've dulled ourselves down so much by living in our little boxes and uh, strapping ourselves to a blue screen. So. I think that that's what that is. Um, and more so, uh, experience I had with Canada myself was I was lucky enough to go to a winter allied sports winter camp. Um, and there were Australians, Canadians, um, American, there were all, all kinds of people. And we went to Whistler. Oh, um, fantastic. Gorgeous. Every opportunity I had, I promise you, I had snowshoes on and I was off on a trail. And uh, a few, a few of the staff there were a little bit worried. I was going to get, um, I was going to get uh, it myself into some bother because we, you, you, t- you pay lip service. You're here in the UK, and you don't really have to think so much about apex predators. But when you think about the wilderness uh, in Canada, you need to be thinking which side of the wind am I on? Not just oh, that looks like a nice. I'm going to go up through that crevasse and through that ravine. If the path is walking underneath and there's a rock face over the top, you want to be keeping an eye out. For that mountain lion, that cougar, or something that's gonna gonna come down and jump well, on you from I, behind. I, so I've been uncomfortably close to a pair of six hundred pound grizzly bears, and uh, I tell you, you feel pretty small <laughs> and insignificant when you're within yeah. twenty yards of of these beasts, and yeah. just like, oh my god, <laughs> that redefining moment of the food chain. Who's yeah. who now? You who's have no because you have no hope. You know, you yeah. have you yeah. have zero hope against these things. Yeah, completely, completely. All, all the uh, all the know-how and, uh, and firearms under the sun and constant readiness uh, will not prepare you for the moment that the uh, the animal decides on its terms when you're going to be on the menu. So it's, um, it's tell me, one of those things. Tell me about some of the programs that you have at um, uh, Hidden Valley. So at Hidden Valley Bushcraft, we are specialist providers of outdoor education and recreational experiences. So we work with schools. We work with, uh, we actually, uh, uh, right up until lockdown one here in the UK, we were, and uh, our governing body for for education in the UK is called Ofsted. And we were Ofsted outstanding in every single department for three to five-year-olds 
three days a week, these children, these children were being dropped off. Excuse me, these children were being dropped off um, at our local church rooms, uh, which just happened to be the empty room, uh, empty uh, building in in the village. And myself, my wife Louise, uh, who was a, a child protection expert detective um, in the UK, uh, police right up until lockdown. She actually retired after eleven years. Um, and and our two wonderful staff members, our two teachers, would accompany the children over to the woodland to the same camp where the veterans are getting that that sense of belonging and tribe through the Woodland Warrior Program, the CIC, the not-for-profit side of things. We were also running the Hidden Valley Bushcraft stuff there. So we had the Woodland Kindergarten product, uh, and then at weekends I would be team building, I would be doing um, – everything women's empowerment groups we'd be doing uh archery we'd be doing um axe throwing uh stag do's you know like before you get married mm-hmm. uh groups of young men coming into the woods to, to learn to skin and gut a trout and uh, and cook it over a fire and uh, cooking a hungry pit underground all these kind of activities you can find on our youtube channel so i, I set up a youtube channel this year uh, to try and because i realized that look if i can't run these courses how else do i get this stuff out there to people and I, I had to, uh, having said I'd never have a YouTube channel, I had to, do it. <laughs> had to bite the bullet and start filming. Um, and I've kind of, I've put out, uh, I must be on about nearly 16 or 18 videos. Uh, and I'm just covering the basics, but to uh, hopefully to a good standard. You'll have to let me know, uh, any Canadians out there. Um, and, um, you know, I, I as, a, as a keen outdoorsman, you know, if I get the opportunity to sit down in front of a, a laptop, um, I will watch someone like Joe Robinet, who, who's massive in Canada, isn't he? Well, um, in the, in did, the world, he's the biggest podcast in the world. Yeah, I mean, he's awesome. So so I'd watch Joe's stuff, um, and it's, yeah, it's all following the same principles. It's all the same kind of stuff. But where, where I'm, I feel uh, I'm very lucky is that I'm coming at this – I was lucky enough while I was in the recovery center and when I decided to back myself and go and, and do the thing that I've always wanted to do, which would be to do what I'm doing now. If I couldn't be a Royal Marine commando anymore, I'm not allowed to wear that green beret and they won't let me serve. Fine. I'm going to go and teach and, and, and do the thing I love the most and, and be in the outdoors. And, and when people really- leave service, one of the most difficult things about that transition is losing your sense of purpose. And, yeah, and that's what you have recovered by helping others, by bringing people to nature, helping those reconnect with nature and therefore reconnect with themselves through nature. Uh, That's giving you your sense of purpose. And there is no better way to recover from uh, PTSD than finding a new purpose and a new way to serve. And serve you are. And uh, thank you for your continued service, Nick, and for all the help that you do in your community. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for saying that. I feel I always kind of, I can't help it. Um, even though I sit down and talk people through what, you know, the imposter syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> I actually talk to people about how Absolutely. your brain works and all the different treatments that are out there right now from CBT to EMDR to NLP to the things that you can kind of, and then some of the holistic stuff. Um, but you still can't help but feel, as just as you said that, I still think to myself, I've still got so much more to do. <laughs> There's so much more to do. Um, but yeah, it's, it is it is an absolute honor and, and a privilege um, to, to sometimes I have to pinch myself. I really do. Uh, I feel, um, I feel very, very, uh, I wouldn't say proud, lucky. I'd say lucky to be in a position 
to be able to do the thing that I love and get paid for it. Well, recovery yeah. is an activity, not an event. And that activity means reaching out to people like Nick Goldsmith and attending the, the, the programs, getting your ass out into the woods, getting mindful, learning the bushcraft. And that's not where it starts and ends, though. It's not an event. It's an activity. But it's yeah. a starting point to uh, creating good habits. So, Nick, what's the best way that people can get a hold of you and learn more about you? Well, um, we have a Facebook account. We have a Instagram account, a Twitter account. We're on LinkedIn. We're all over the place. YouTube is always a good start. YouTube, Hidden Valley Bushcraft. At Twitter, we are at HV, so Hotel Victor Bushcraft. Uh, Instagram, just type in Hidden Valley Bushcraft, one word, double D, double L. Uh, Same with Facebook, and you should find us. And you'll be able to see all kinds of... uh, snips and clips and some of the stuff we've done with um with tv uh i've i've done a few public speaking events um one notably at facebook at one of their uh they signed the armed forces covenant here in the uk um so i was lucky to be one of the main guest speakers for that um yeah you know the the message and the story is out there but it's as you say you've got to come on the course Uh, you've got to actually commit there's no change without change Uh, and i appreciate that's a really hard thing to do when you're looking at the world through your letterbox, but coming on, it's far, it's far easier to come and sit around a campfire with like-minded people who've been there uh, and, and, you know, and, uh, and are on that journey than, than it is to, to sometimes reach out and pick up the, pick up the phone to a friend is always a good start. You know, there's always going to be one person in this world that you can pick up the phone to do that for a start. Uh, me in the meantime, research, see what's out there, get into the outdoors, um, You've, there's no other way to say it. I, I said earlier about that evolutionary standpoint, you know, we are hardwired to be in the outdoors. That The word you might want to Google is biophilia. You ever heard of that word? I have biophilia. not. So biophilia, the rich natural pleasure that comes from being surrounded by living organisms is rooted in our evolution. We've been hunter-gatherers, hunter-gatherers for 99% of our genetic history. You know, if you think about that, For a million years, our survival depended on our ability to read the weather, the stars, the species around us, to navigate, empathize, and cooperate with our environment. And that's what I'm trying to help people to do again. But in doing so, and doing it as a group, guess what? Quite quickly, you you come along as an individual, and hopefully, if I've done my job right, you know, and if the environment has done done 50% of the work for me, um, you leave as a tribe. And then you end up with this wonderful peer-to-peer environment where... I always say people in glass houses don't throw stones. You know, if everyone's everyone's around that campfire for a reason, whatever that reason is, that's, that's up to them if they want to share or if they don't want to share, you know, it'll all happen with time. But then they get invited back and they come back on various days where we do conservation-based activities. We plant trees, we sort out drainage, we, uh, we open up areas, we create, um, you know, we're looking at taking on two beehives next year. We've got 30 bird boxes went in last year. We've planted nearly 750 trees. You know, in this tiny eight-acre plot, all this stuff is happening and we're rewilding. That's truly incredible. We're rewilding a section of the UK, but we're also rewilding people. Well, Nick, thank you so much for being a guest on Operation Tango Romeo today and for also being on the same mission that I am, which is to save lives and relieve pain by making help easily accessible. And what you do 
matters. And you are saving lives by doing what you're doing, whether you're willing to say that out loud or acknowledge it or not. It's true. And uh, you are a beacon of hope and healing for people. And by sharing your story here, um, you are sharing your story in about 33 countries right now so far, last I, wow. last I checked. And um, as I told you off air before we got going, I, it is very important to me to have this show get more and more exposure within the UK because I believe uh, UK veterans are very underserved when it comes to being looked after and recovery. Um, that is the way of the world, unfortunately. But uh, the Canadian veteran veterans, there's a lot of them that are not happy with uh, our service, but we are lucky by comparison. I've talked to numerous, numerous um, uh, from the British forces, and uh, we've got it pretty pretty good over here by comparison with uh, the Canadian Veterans Affairs. So um, what you do is is essential because the government is just not going to catch up to you anytime soon as far as providing uh, the the appropriate resources for healing, even acknowledging the injuries. I just, I just probably wanted to add that you've actually got one of ours with you now. Well, was uh, Prince Harry. <laughs> um, so, so we were lucky enough to receive funding from what was, well, the Endeavor Fund from his personal, uh, well, charity he's part of, uh, and they, uh, they very kindly funded uh, uh, almost a year's worth of solid courses for people to come for free to come on our course uh, and on the Woodland Warrior Program. So I'm massively thankful for him for that. Um, well, he's, and that really he, helped he, to raise our status. He's on my dream list uh, as, a, as a future guest. Uh, he's a friend of a friend, actually. So Absolutely. If I, but he doesn't have direct, as, as most people don't, he doesn't have direct uh, uh, <laughs> access yeah, yeah, to him. Yeah, Can't yeah, just yeah, pick, yeah. pick up the phone, but uh, he actually went to the North Pole with him. Uh, That's cool. He, he, he really cares. He really cares. Yeah. He gets it. And he is one of us. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's no one better or no greater accolade for us to, to have them, uh, that organization reach out to us and say, look, how can we support you? And what, you know, how do we make this work? And, and let's hear some more about what you do. Uh, and for us to then be able to go to London, uh, present ourselves, um, explain what we do and explain how the funding would, would help people and, and to be fortunate enough to, um, to be the recipient of that. I mean, that's, that's changed a lot of things for us. I think suddenly a lot of people ears pricked up, up and down the country. People were going, Oh, Woodland Warrior program. What's this about? You know, um, all the, all the big charity names were all suddenly emailing us. Uh, so it was, it was a, it was a really defining moment for the Woodland Warrior program. So I, I thank him for that and everyone else on that board. And thank you again for being here. Please stay on the line. You are listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help or PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to trauma recovery is clear.